Hey y'all, welcome to Hyper Real Film Club Presents Texas Film in Focus. I'm your host, Samantha Ray Lopez, and today we're talking about another aspect of why Texas is such a vibrant film community that breeds great stories and highly skilled talent. So I am super excited about today's topic, which to be honest, I've been struggling to really define. <laughs> and before I get into why, I want to give you some insight into kind of how the sausage is made, uh, some behind the scenes, if you will. So my approach to this show is basically to talk to as many people as possible and allow for topics to kind of organically bubble up to the top, right? And so the more I talk to folks, the more I'd be able to craft each of these themes. And while that has proven to be a very time-consuming approach, the further along I go, the more that I'm glad I went this route because... I'm not sure I would have had this kind of foresight to see this come together. That and also Chloe, the show assistant, has been super helpful in uh, kind of giving me some direction and perspective when I get too far in the weeds. She was like, you know that this fits together, right? These things. So let's talk about what these things are. Today we're going to talk about the aspect of film that encompasses film preservation, criticism, and academia. And for me, all of these fall under this one umbrella. And what that umbrella is called, I am still working through, and I really can't define. It has been keeping me up at night, and I just can't articulate the right term or phrase that gives all of these justice. So I'm just going to keep letting it roll around in my brain, and maybe you can help me out here, but in all honesty... Does it really matter? Let's just move into the episode pretending we have a term for it and just vibe. But really, all of these things, preservation, criticism, and academia, all kind of speak to something we've already talked about, and that is media education, film comprehension, and how we're thinking critically about the media that we consume. And I think this aspect of film is something that's super important because not only do we have the makers of the medium in the state, we have those who are maintaining the legacy of the crafts, elevating voices through opportunities in the academic space, and folks who are creating discourse and taking the film experience a bit deeper. So the people that you're going to hear from today are super knowledgeable in these areas, and I really think that they deserve a voice in the conversation around Texas film. And I'm going to be thinking about what this umbrella term is over time. Maybe by the end of the episode, you might have a better idea of what that label or category could be. So, I don't know. Help me out here. Okay, we're talking about preservation, criticism, and academia today. And you're really going to like the folks that I talk to. I mean, I loved them. So I really don't care if you like them or not. But they definitely contribute to the show in a way that I think makes this a bit more dynamic, right? So the first person we're talking to is Michael Thievold. He is a film professor at ACC, a programmer, and former program manager at the Austin Film Society. He's got a wide variety of experience, so I had a great time talking with him about his point of view on the Texas film scene. So you were teaching at ACC for a while. You've seen it from the perspective, or I guess seen this, the film scene from the perspective of AFS. Um, can you talk a bit about kind of the landscape of Texas film from your perspective and your interactions with filmmakers throughout the years? You know, I, I've been pretty proactive in trying to kind of dip my, my finger into different parts of, uh, 
the Austin film scene in particular. So, I mean, I moved here in 2008 and, and did grad school at UT and their media studies program, and uh, then immediately started working with different film festivals after that. Um, so I worked with the Austin Film Festival and uh, and Aglif and uh, Other Worlds, the Sci-Fi Film Festival, and then uh, later on a little bit with South by Southwest. Surprise! Michael is a fest person. And early on, that was mostly kind of screening and then doing some Q&As at the festival and then doing some panel moderation. Um, and, you know, as you're doing that, you're meeting people, you meet people in the organizations, you meet the filmmakers that you're interviewing or talking with or just kind of crossing paths with at the festivals, which is a great way to kind of get uh, your finger on the pulse of what the Austin film scene feels like is to kind of check out some of these different festivals, you know, as you're rushing from one location to the next at South by or Austin Film Festival, you know, that gives you one view of this kind of the, the grander, you know, side of it, right? And you can see real, really the, um, the kind of fervor of fandom that supports this art form, which is really cool, you know. Um, and a lot of those people that are are rabid fans are also working in the industry at some capacity as well. Um, sometimes it's filmmaker support, but more often than not, it's going to be, you know, as some degree of filmmaker or writer, you know, uh, as well, which is, you know, very cool. Um, at ACC, it's, it's kind of a different thing uh, because it's all education based. You're really trying to drive kind of like, I guess, um, at ACC, you, you really want to kind of like build that passion in the students, you know. Um, I teach over there in, uh, in the studies areas. So, you know, kind of film and media history and criticism and, and, uh, those kind of realms. Uh, I don't teach hands-on filmmaking cause that's not where my background really lies. Um, but as I tell them, you know, I kind of do it because I'm passionate about it, but also because I'm, I'm, I, in a way it's, it's self-beneficial also because I want to see what, what the next filmmakers are going to do. We can't, can't rest on laurels, if you will, right? Like filmmaking just has to keep going forward. So if you can instill that passion and they have the skills and the vision, then it's it's all playing together kind of holistically, right? And then there's there's AFS and there's um, working with, with filmmaker support, which I've done different ways, uh, formally in the role there, but then also working at festivals doing, uh, during talks about grants and, and grant writing. And um, I've, started doing a little bit of producing on a feature film recently as well. So I'm kind of like dipping my toe in that, that water also. Since I was having a hard time nailing down the thesis of this episode, I asked for some help from Michael to kind of talk through it a little bit. Here's his response. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, uh, I mean, it seems like kind of the angle in a, a one way is, you know, film support, the other side of film support, you know, like there is film support as in filmmaker support and, and making sure that those, individuals with the skills and the vision are able to make those films. But then on the other side of it, on both other sides of it, really, you have those people that are not dealing with the filmmakers at all. They're dealing with the end product, right? So when you're talking about Tammy, you're talking about Agfa, you know, these are people that are coming to the end product and that's where their passion lies, making sure that that is around and accessible and presentable in a fashion that is, um, you know, like the way that the original filmmaker one would have wanted to see it on film that you can actually watch, that you could actually hear that's not a total, total garbage viewing, right? That they um, have either restored it or they've been able to maintain it over the years uh, in a way that is professional and lasting, you know? And then on the other side of that, um, we have people that are kind of champions of films and filmmakers uh, and, and the general 
passion of the process, right? So educators that really want to instill that passion, but then also want to give individuals who maybe, you know, watch films or kind of appreciate them from an entertainment standpoint, but want to have them dig deeper into it. That's where you're getting into that criticism, right? Really understanding what the filmmaker intended, or maybe in some cases didn't even intend. We're talking kind of postmodernly, right? Um, and then it's really about what did the film, how, how can the film be interpreted regardless of what the, the artist wanted, you know? The product can it also lives on its own, right? So giving uh, individuals the tools necessary to really dissect that and enjoy it in various ways, right? And this is one of the, the great benefits of going out to uh, a film, either at a film festival or at some of the, these art house cinemas where uh, you get an introduction by a knowledgeable historian or, or a passionate programmer who is going to give a little bit of context to those films. You know, you can go in and watch a movie uh, blind. That is a great way to watch a movie. Uh, in many cases, sometimes it's horrible if the movie like, doesn't line up, you're not ready for that particular experience. But going in blind is a really enjoyable rare experience because you know you feel like you know something about a movie coming in right um there's a great term uh the horizon of expectations right that kind of speaks to that um where it might be something small it might be something big but you're going to bring something into that movie experience before the movie tells you anything uh, that's going to shape your viewing of it if done right then a great intro can can really kind of mold your mind in the right direction and prepare you for a, a really engaging, um, sometimes life-changing experience, you know? Uh, and that's a very different side of it. Critics hope to do the same thing if I, if they're a good critic, I would think, you know? Um, and, 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 you know, they're all part of another group and they can, both of these reside on either side of the actual filmmaking process, right? Either before or after it, but not necessarily engaging with the intermediary. I mean, yes, that's exactly what I was going for. Okay, at least I got some validation there. And I love this term that he brought up that is um, horizon of expectation, which is something that we're all very aware of, right? We all know what a spoiler is and why we use spoiler alert disclaimers. Um, I just loved hearing that in such a concise way. You learn something new every day. And I think what it really comes down to is, you know, he says something along the lines of giving individuals the tools necessary to really dissect and enjoy it in very different ways. It being film, right? And I think to be able to dissect a piece of work that's already been developed allows for that piece to have its own legs. And it's something totally different when it's complete, right? And the way that different people perceive it is also totally valid. And that absolutely informs the way that we engage in film. So let's talk to one of the people who's really taking charge from the preservation aspect here in Texas. Caroline Frick is an associate professor in the RTF program at UT Austin. She is also the founder of the Texas Archive of the Moving Image, otherwise known as TAMI, that's T-A-M-I, and they're focused on preserving Texas film in many forms. Let's start with the Texas Archive of the Moving Image. Um, in your founding of the organization, what was the thinking that went behind putting together an organization like this and kind of the importance of something like this existing specifically in Texas? And that's a great question. It's funny because when I look back on it, I'm like, what was I thinking <laughs> when I founded it? Like, I'm like, oh, I really, wow. No, it's, it was, uh, it's been the greatest gift 
um, really. And I feel very, very blessed to have been, and actually, you know, we're really getting close to nearly 20 years. And that's, that's really an accomplishment, I think, for any, any organization, but especially kind of a scrappy startup like this. Um, So maybe, probably the quickest way of, of answering that question is that my my background, um, ever since I was about 13 or 14, I was always interested in old film, always interested in old film. A lot of times if you say you're interested in film, people assume you want to do production. And I was never interested in production. I was always interested in, in older materials and really fell in love with old Hollywood films. And then I had this amazing opportunity, which was go to a now defunct program, but a program in the United Kingdom that was about learning how to be a film archivist, how to take care of old film. And my eyes were really kind of open to the potential for expanding what we think about in terms of uh, film history, right? So when we think about that. Now, think about that pre-YouTube. I think with YouTube today, we're very comfortable with thinking that moving images are very expansive. But but back, back in the 90s and the 2000s, that was still pretty early on. And I think that in the United States, Hollywood eclipses everything that we think about with, with media. Um, so when, uh, when I returned to US, I was able to work at places like the Library of Congress. I was able to work at Warner Brothers and then eventually chose to do my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. And when I got here, I was really captivated by the incredible, as, as you well know, the, the, both the kind of energy surrounding media production, film production, but also the legacy of it. And I became really interested in the fact that despite this over 100 years history of Texas film production, no organization had arisen to really specifically address this, right? There was essentially no regional film archive for Texas. And that's where I thought there's a real opportunity here. And and the idea, of course, was not not to take that material. We didn't want to go out to Lubbock or go out to El Paso or go down to the valley and say, we want to take your stuff. What we wanted to do was think of the archive as a hub for preservation-related discussions, preservation assistance, and digitization assistance. Um, and that's that's what kind of has guided us in, in principle is that we believe that the materials, any kind of archival materials, should, should remain in the communities where they were born, right? And so what we want to do is keep with the mantra, make lots of copies. The more copies you have, the more likelihood that it will it will remain. Um, and so that's what we've done. And um, we've developed uh, quite an interesting collection, I think, and I think hopefully offer a very different perspective on what Texas film and television history is than that kind of conventional story that we're often told. I know one of the um, programs that y'all had, y'all essentially did this call for people to send in home movies. Can you talk about the thought behind that and um, and why the um, process of archiving this type of footage is important in addition to the movies and televisions that we all know as, you know, what quote unquote should be preserved, right? The, the kind of ethos behind the creation of the organization um, very much inspired what we call the Texas Film Roundup. And it's a program that does continue today. And the idea is to proactively 
pursue collections that would not normally find their way into traditional archives. We would probably think that Richard Linklater at some point would donate his papers or his films to a major film archive. But we might not think that um, Caroline Frick living in Austin, Texas would donate, right? her information because who's ever heard of this person, right? So the idea was to proactively go out to communities and raise awareness, kind of a, 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 you know, raise awareness about the value, not just of preserving the searchers or preserving giants, but also preserving our stories specifically, in essence, ground up history, right? So trying to get out to communities and organizations. So in some cases, I think home movies are something very evocative, and we can really think about those as, as kind of obvious. But we're also trying to partner with organizations, historical societies, museums, um, independent uh, media makers to a certain degree. So we literally have gone from town to town with a bring out your film and television campaign or video campaign. And what we do is we will digitize it for free in return for a copy that we can add to our collection. Then we return those materials with a digital copy back to the family, back to the organization with some information about how to preserve material over time. Um, so that way, getting back to, again, kind of our mission, we have a copy that we can use for education and a copy that uh, will kind of be a backup for then, and film in particular is harder to deal with now because that kind of expertise and that intellectual know-how, like literally how to, how to handle 16 millimeter film isn't around. So you find that in places like public libraries or historical societies, everybody can handle the photographs, everybody can handle the paper, but the films present an interesting uh, digital challenge, right? And that's what we're here to, to help with. We did try this last year during the pandemic to do our first kind of born digital roundup because we do feel strongly that we have this great collection now of 20th century uh, Texana <laughs> and different stories there. But, but those early those early 2000s are pretty bereft. So we really did want to reach out to people to say, please, 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 even if it's a two second video, just send us something from that time because we want to make sure that, you know, because to children today, that's going to feel like ancient history. What does that look like in terms of public facing access? If somebody was, I don't know, doing research or needed access to something for a film that they're creating, um, how might they work with your organization to, to get access to that? We, when we started, wanted to think of this very differently, and it has to do with digital technologies. It has to do with the web. We, we very much saw a vision for simply this mantra that lots of copies keep stuff safe. So the way that it works for us is that if you go to our website, right? And that's, that's why it's kind of a quid pro quo. If you get a free digital copy, then you're also contributing to this new, new form of Texas history. Um, everything that, not, not fully everything, but in, in essence, what we have is all on the web. But essentially, it's like a YouTube for Texas, right? Except curated and without lots of crazy comments, because we're going to shut that down. We kind of view it as an educate. We are an educational nonprofit. And our goal is kind of with our site is it should be appropriate for fourth graders and up, right? So that the idea is that this is a resource that can be used for uh, social studies teachers, for history professors, whomever around the world, really. But we also partner with Texas K through 12 uh, social studies teachers, specifically fourth grade and seventh grade are looking at Texas history. So we always try to think about our collection as being fully accessible 
but it needs to be appropriate for a fourth grader and, and up. So basically people can come to our site, they can search on our site, they can hit random film to learn more about our collections and they are freely um, streamed um, on there for viewing. We do at times uh, license material or offer material to be used in other productions, but it's kind of on a case by case basis since that's not really our, um, you know, kind of, we're not a stock footage house in essence, right? So we have worked with student projects, we have worked with um, other kinds of film organizations, but but we are an educational organization uh, kind of at our core. So what are some ways in which the general public, like our listeners, might be able to engage with the organization, whether that be utilizing the tools that you have or supporting the organization financially or, or you know, or other means? What does that look like? We have been so fortunate in partnering with the Texas Film Commission, which is out of the office of the governor, um, on the Texas Film Roundup program. They have been incredible partners, and it really kind of is very symbiotic to their mission in terms of increasing uh, both, both kind of media production within the state, but then also being able to look at the value of that for, for heritage tourism. Um, we, we feel that this program really complements the mission of the, the Film Commission. But one of the, the frustrating parts is that often people will assume that we are a government agency and we are not. We are an independent uh, 501c3 nonprofit. So I like that you say, so can people contribute financially? Yes, you can. There is a great opportunity. We are a very lean team and I think we, we have done done an award-winning project where we have won made many national awards um, where the this is the only film commission in the entire country that supports preservation uh, through our program and I feel like that's something that I really like to champion is that Texas is is a national and international leader in this kind of work so financially there's an opportunity uh, another thing that's really helpful is participating in the film roundups right if if even if you have born digital items that's great. We love that because we don't want to have this kind of digital dark ages where we've got all this material from 1960, but we don't have very much from 1997 or 2005. So, so contributing and participating in that program is really, really valuable for us. And then lastly, I would argue that um, we're always looking for volunteer help from the standpoint of kind of, I think the National Archives uses the term citizen archivist, where for example, we have lots of footage that we don't know what it is. We don't know who the people are in it. We, we love people to kind of cruise around and take a look and say, oh my gosh, no, I know exactly where that is. That is Hamilton Pool and it's blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's lots of ways to kind of um, help be sleuths uh, for us and help identify material too. Um, so we always have new programs and, and in some ways just kind of joining our um, email listserv uh, and and following us on social media for, for new opportunities because we're always coming up with new, new programs. I want to ask real quick about your work at UT. Can you talk a bit about your what you teach and how you're kind of contributing to um, kind of the legacy of preservation? I would say that my role at UT and one that I, I really love and believe passionately in is keeping the value of older films and the value of preserving older media uh, alive and well. For example, um, 
I think a lot of people do not realize, and, and there's no reason that they would, right? But even film students, somebody that's been studying film or is a film enthusiast, uh, might not realize that 90% of films that were made before sound came in, so during the silent era of filmmaking, so you're talking um, essentially pre-1927, 90% of films made at that time no longer exist. So when you teach a film history class, that becomes an interesting challenge because what you're trying to communicate is that preservation and the policies behind collecting uh, any kind of media, right, inform the histories that we have. So when you have a conversation about taking, go with me here, but if you have a conversation about uh, renaming schools or you're going to take down statues and you're going to do all of this, those are preservation questions. How do we perform history? And I think that film is a really, really valuable part of this that we still don't take too seriously. So what I try to say is, look, you may think you don't like old movies and you very well may not, but let's think of those movies less as traditional entertainment, but maybe now as historical artifact. And then who's taking care of that artifact? Who has, who has manipulated that artifact? Um, what is missing from this story? So if people point to the 1920s and say this was a very, very, uh, I don't know, this was a, there were five directors who wrote the history of, of film, right? This is how you used to study movies. There were five directors that wrote the story. Well, that's because only 10% of the films remain. And let me assure you that those 10% were probably because the Museum of Modern Art sanctioned those people as being important, right? So the canon was formed very early on. And what's actually fascinating is the stories that weren't told, the stories that you have to dig and build up. Uh, for example, um, a lot of people might know the name Georges Méliès in terms of film history, A Trip to the Moon, very important. Uh, figure in the history of cinematography, of filmmaking, uh, certainly beloved by people like Martin Scorsese and et cetera. But a lot of people don't realize that he actually sent his brother to the United States to start his own kind of branch of the film company and set up shop in San Antonio because they wanted to do Westerns and they came to San Antonio. Basically one or two of those films still exist. But wouldn't that be an interesting addendum to more of Hollywood history by saying, you know, actually it wasn't just Florida and New York and Chicago and LA, but also San Antonio. And I think that's what I try and I feel very passionately about is to tell those stories or to complicate maybe what those traditional stories of film history are for us um, and into broadcasting history and beyond because you know, as we have said for many, many years, you don't have to go to New York and LA. Maybe we should learn about the incredible role that Dallas and the Dallas-Fort Worth area have played in the history of, of media production. That might be inspiring for people who, who really want to think about a career in this pretty multifaceted industry. And I think that's what I love about what you're doing, because, you know, I think it's really important that people understand that there's always going to be opportunities in Hollywood or, or in LA and New York and Vancouver and where have you. But I think that it is, there's some harm in not acknowledging the incredible work that has been done for well over a hundred years closer to home. And, and particularly now with the evolution of technologies, you know, it, it, there's the power of media and the power of kind of 
so-called amateur media is pretty is is inspiring right and we've seen this throughout the 20th century we've seen it into the 21st um but bearing witness with a camera is is pretty is pretty powerful ways we all have them in our pockets now dang y'all i left this interview with my wheels turning when she said how do we perform history and how powerful media is it just reminded me why this work is so important and why we can't sleep on archivists the amount of tender loving care that goes into preserving our history is so underrated if you have some footage to contribute to the archive, go to texasarchive.org to get more info on that. And while you're there, browse the site and stop by their Support Us section for the many ways to support the Texas Archive of the Moving Image. What a time to be alive! Okay, let's shift into talking about film criticism. There's a lot of misconceptions about what critics are and what they do, so I talked with Marissa Mirabal about this topic. She's a freelance film critic and staff writer for Slash Film, a juror for multiple festivals, and works part-time for Fangoria. Oh, also, she has a full-time job at The Chronicle. So from your vantage point, why is film criticism important, and how does it fuel the Texas film scene? I've been doing film criticism for about four and a half years now, and I came on board at a really good time when... uh, Film sites were looking to amplify female voices. There aren't a lot of female film critics, and especially in genres that I love, like horror and sci-fi. So I was very fortunate to have uh, Birth, Movies, Death take a chance on me um, and really amplify my voice and let me uh, nerd out and trust me to go to film festivals and cover films, um, you know, specifically with South by Southwest and Fantastic Fest, but I definitely think it's important and I do appreciate publications who do want to amplify female voices and uh, just marginalized voices in general. Um, You know, they bring a different perspective to films and writing about the films that we see from various perspectives just you know only further helps the movie itself to get distribution or spotlight um you know actors or producers and directors and thematic elements of the movie as well as filmmaking techniques uh people behind the scenes as well um that just gives a more robust uh perception of the movie and you know i think that a lot of people have the best at heart when they do review films. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me of that movie, Almost Famous, where people would be like, you know, you're the enemy, you're, you're the one who critiques the movies. But, um, you know, even though it's a critique, it comes from a place of love and fandom in a sense and professionalism. So specifically in Texas, it's really important too, because we have a lot of films and TV shows that get made in Texas, but there definitely could be more. And so having a local scene of credible, notable voices who speak about film, the importance of it, how it can boost our economy and uh, what it really does to our local cinemas as well. All of those components are really important and they do feed into uh, film criticism in one way or another. So I guess going back to your point about like, um, you know, coming from a good place and your approach to to your film criticism, I know there's a lot of like 
online conversation and opinions being thrown out. So I guess from your point of view, like what is the difference between people giving their opinions on a film and legitimate discourse surrounding a, a certain topic that a film presents? You know, it's great to have conversations about film, but some of, you know, the websites, um, when people comment can be super toxic and just non uh, productive. It doesn't really serve a purpose other than for someone to say, this is my opinion, this is my voice, you know, so I don't really get hung up on that. Um, I really strive to uh, boost female filmmakers, uh, taboo subject matter, um, marginalized voices in general, uh, unique approaches to filmmaking too, from an artistic perspective. I think uh, when you put ego aside, that's when you can focus on the art and the art form and what the story and the film is actually saying and how it's visually and thematically and emotionally conveyed. And there's a lot of components that go into that. And um, what separates the commenter or the random opinion online is an appreciation and respect, um, taking away that ego. And then also, I think a lot of it is uh, kind of dissecting it in a way. And even if you don't like a film, um, as a film writer or critic, that doesn't mean that other people won't. So there's several films that just were not for me, but I can appreciate certain components about them and what they were trying to accomplish. And there could be an audience out there for this movie. So keeping that in mind is as well is I think really important. But for me personally, I try to approach it in the sense of um, how the film is made, what the story is trying to tell, uh, how important that story is as well in terms of, you know, pushing boundaries or is this something that we've seen over and over again? Is this, you know, another fully white cis male, you know, cast and crew that's pushing the same stuff over and over again? Um, you know, and I'm a very uh, technical observer when it comes to film criticism. So I really break it down in terms of, I love practical effects. Uh, I pay attention to film scores, um, costume design and stunts and uh, just more of the behind the scenes elements that don't really get a lot of representation or a lot of credit. I really like talking about those people as well because they bring those stories to life too. So again, I really think that it's uh, a more dynamic and robust way that you're looking at the movie as opposed to, I liked it or I didn't like it. Do you have any advice on how our listeners can be more well-rounded in terms of pursuing quality film criticism and rounding out how they engage in these kinds of conversations while supporting Texas film specifically? I think in terms of wanting to support um, Texas uh, critics is just, you know, check out their criticism. I mean, there's some really great voices out there right now. Um, the Austin Chronicle has a lot of really good uh, movie reviewers and you know within being a film critic there's also different components that we do you know we don't just 
write about if a good movie was good or bad. You know, we go to set visits. We um, were there in the process of uh, certain films sometimes on set with them, which is really cool. Um, there's lots of different interviews that we do. There's editorials, um, anniversary articles. I mean, uh, there's just a lot of different uh, a lot of really cool stuff that's going on within the film criticism world and seek out um, different voices, you know, female voices, uh, writers who are indigenous or black or, you know, uh, Hispanic, you know, just different, um, you know, writers, there's a lot of fantastic writers in the LGBTQIA community who are providing, you know, really insightful and uh, progressive information uh, into filmmaking from uh, a queer perspective. And, you know, it's just, it's really cool to see all these different perspectives on film from an outside uh, educated sort of look and framework. So support local, local publications, go to your local cinemas. And what's really cool now, um, film festivals have sort of pivoted to having a virtual component and an in-person component. So even if you don't feel comfortable going to an in-person festival, uh, there are virtual options that you can look into that are more cost-effective as well. Share is another thing, like share other people's work. So um, with all that said, those are all ways that you could support the film community in a lot of different ways. Totally agree with all of this. Y'all already know how I feel about expanding your horizons by exposing yourself to new films, but continuing in productive discourse adds a whole other layer of film comprehension. And speaking of growing and expanding your knowledge, let's talk to a few scholars in this space. Mirasol Enriquez was on the top of my list of people to talk to for this show. And let me tell you right now, you're going to hear lots from her in the next few episodes, too. She's a sixth generation Tejana and is a film and media scholar who is currently the director of Latino Media Arts and Studies, as well as an assistant professor in the RTF program at the University of Texas at Austin. She has a freaking PhD in cinema and media studies. And as I mentioned, we're going to dive into her expertise later in the series. But for this one... I wanted to get her take on academia overall, and we touched on topics related to representation and identity that I feel are super relevant to this discussion. I asked her what kind of changes she's seen in her students that differed from her experience in navigating academia. So one thing that I see, you know, you asked me about um, sort of what has changed and what sort of is the same. So, and what I can say is that when I was going through school, you know, I just remember being so hungry for classes that spoke to my experience, for faculty who cared about the things that I did, um, and faculty who looked like me. I didn't have a lot of role models in terms of seeing uh, other Latinas in the media, and certainly not a whole lot in the academy either. So when I found Black and Brown faculty, women of color, um, you know, uh, faculty were teaching about things I cared about that were important to my community. I just latched onto them, right? I was like chicle, like I just, you know, took every class that they taught. Um, I mean, I specifically remember this one professor, um, Sharon Holland, who uh, I remember her, she was a young African-American professor who would tell us stories about how she would go to the library in her jeans and her dreads, and she'd be there to put things on reserve for her class. 
and she would get treated by like, you know, she'd be treated like a student. Um, and I remember her talking about this and being really open and it just lit me on fire. You know, it was so inspiring to hear her talk about how she was there to change things. She would go there deliberately in her jeans. You know, she would go, she, she's like, this is who I am. This is what faculty looks like. Right. So she was there to change things. And that was incredibly inspiring, but she was one of very few, right. Um, that I could see and be inspired by. And I, you know, I was really lucky to feel like I belonged at the university because my dad had been a grad student when I was a kid. So I spent my very early years on a university campus. Um, but I was also hyper aware that that system wasn't really built for people who, you know, look like me, meaning people of color, meaning women, right? Um, so many other groups that are underrepresented. Um, and there are all kinds of challenges that make it hard to get through every step of the way, even once you're in there, right? And so, so my goal was just to get through the system because I very quickly recognized that this institution was not necessarily made for me. And sadly, you know, that is still something that I hear from students. Um, I still have a lot of students that tell me how nice it is to finally have someone who looks like them at the front of the class. Um, I still have students who tell me how thankful they are to finally be taking a class where their culture and their communities are being, you know, recognized and validated, um, where they can explore their own identities and talk about the kinds of things that matter to them. Um, so that's something that kind of hasn't changed, I think. Um, but one thing that has changed, I think, is that students recognize that the university has a responsibility to them. So, you know, even if, if being in the university setting can be really alienating and really isolating, um, I think students know that they aren't alone. And, and that partly that, you know, being at UT, I can only speak really to what's happening at UT because that's where I am. But, you know, there's there are increasing numbers of Latino students. Um, you know, we just qualified to be recognized as, as, a, as an HSI, a Hispanic serving institution, which means over 25 percent of the student body um, is is Hispanic. What they're tracking is what they call Hispanic. Right. Um, and so, you know, that that number hasn't increased at the pace that is equal to the overall population, you know, over, you know, almost almost half the population um, in Texas is Hispanic, right? So we still have a long way to go in terms of, of, of reaching that level in the university. Um, but, you know, higher education, of course, can be uh, really inaccessible to Latinos, right? You know, having to do with costs, it has to do with the admissions policies and all the other responsibilities people have at home. You know, there's all, all kinds of things, but we are making moves. And, and what I'm really happy to say and to see and to be part of is, is UT, you know, is really doing a better uh, job of serving this huge segment of the population. And the, the Moody College specifically, which is where RTF, the radio television film department is housed, is doing a lot. Um, the, the RTF department has over 35% of the students are Hispanic and our RTF has recently hired several Latinx faculty um, and UT overall, in fact, has done that, has been increasingly, you know, has been, has been uh, hiring more Latino faculty. And then the, the, there's the Latino Media Arts and Studies program, right? Um, and that's another way that the Moody College has really been supporting Latino film uh, and media makers and journalists and advertising professionals. And we're really, we're there to help create a sense of community for the students to be really deliberate about the ways that we are supporting Latino students to get through the system, right? And not only to get through the system, but to thrive in the system, 
to be able to find each other. So again, this feeling like, oh, am I alone out here? Like, why do I feel alone? I think they know, they know they're not alone, right? There, there are students on campus. There are programs that are built, you know, that are coming into play, um, you know, that, that are, that are built to, um, to serve them. Right. And so, you know, we're a new program, um, you know, only four years, uh, four years young. Right. Um, but they're, the certificate program and minor have been around many, many years before. Um, uh, and so and again, it's really about creating this this sense of community. Um, there's a speaker series where you have all kinds of student events um, also to help them find each other, help students find each other and then build their own networks and do whatever it is they do, you know, and once you have that community and you can really let those creative sparks, you know, really fly. And that's what, that's what it's about, about um, exposing them to all kinds of different aspects of the industry with the different speakers that come in so that they can then, you know, it can shape the way, like, where, what do I want to do? Like, how do I make the most of my undergraduate education or graduate education um, and learning about the amazing Latinx, you know, professionals who are already out there in the world who are making change. And again, seeing those role models that are out there, um, making sure that they're visible, that you, that we, that we find, we all find each other, right? Um, so I think the university really is trying to better support the students and they're, you know, responsive to the needs of the students. Um, and Dean Bernhardt also appointed Yaki Smith to be the first associate dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Moody College at the beginning of last year. Um, and I cannot even begin to tell you about all the initiatives that are in motion, right, as a result. Um, you know, the efforts of the, the university, you know, that they're making to recruit and uh, support and retain a much more diverse student body. It's really visible. So the students know that there is a, a there's there are efforts and they even if it's not being done perfectly all the time right and that the numbers are not quite as high as the population you know there are efforts there they know that it's important they know that they are important um, and I think they're empowered to really speak up in ways that I don't I don't know that I necessarily felt when I was making my way through you know the university system you know when I was coming up I had the there was like Rosalina Fregoso John Noriega, Charles Ramirez Berg, those were, that was a sort of first generation of, of scholars. And then Mary Beltran's very important work, which for me, to me, when I was coming in, like, I'm like, oh, these are the, the scholars. And I wasn't realizing that, that this had just sort of begun. We were just getting that next generation of scholars, right? And so now the people who are, who, who I am, I have the privilege of teaching, um, they have even even more, right? When I think about it, I'm like, oh, there really were just like a handful of books actually when I think about it. Um, and uh, the students now have even more access, right? Which I think in, in a lot of ways is, that that's something that's different, right? Um, and so that's exciting. What this highlights for me is the various levels of academic gatekeeping that exists for filmmakers to navigate this structure. And going back to Caroline's question of how do we perform history, this is reflected in the representation, or lack thereof, within the academic spaces that are fostering the next generation of filmmakers. Speaking from experience, when you don't see yourself, you can't see yourself. You know what I'm saying? The work that Mirasol is doing is so much more powerful than just teaching curriculum. There's so much more that is at stake for students of color, women, other traditionally marginalized groups to access spaces like this. More from Mirasol in future episodes. But in the meantime, 
I want to share a piece of my conversation with Yaki Smith, who is a Texas-based indie filmmaker and a film professor, and is the Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the Moody College at UT Austin. One of the things I'm really interested in learning about is kind of your new role at UT and how the institution is investing in people of color, marginalized groups, and uh, the kind of work you're doing to elevate storytellers to be able to do that. I'm a straight shooter, so I'm just going to be very honest. And you probably already got this. You know, look, UT is a racist institution, and we know this, right? It is historically a racist institution. It has spent um, resources uh, to keep people of color out of it um, historically. Um, and, and, And I keep saying historically because I do think that there are certain things that have changed. I do think that there have been initiatives put in place to try to sort of rewrite that wrong. But honestly, the strong vestiges of that history still exist on our campus. Um, When you think about the eyes of Texas, right? We can go on and on and on about that, but the fact that a song that we know that is, you know, look, it's it's racist and and, and we know that it is offensive and we know that, 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 you know, the fact that a song was sort of created for a minstrel show where people sung it in blackface, um, the the fact that that this particular um, um, song has existed and persisted for so long, and then even after people uh, literally went to the Capitol, right, and and said, "No, we we refuse. Like, let, let's not do this. Football players marching. Let's not." That we still are singing it, and that there has been a justification for that. That lets you know that those vestiges, those historical vestiges of racism still exists on our campus. Um, You know, without going into much more detail, there are other things that are happening on that campus. I think that, that, that point to that idea, right? The, the, this sort of African-American student population has been sitting at about 5%, you know, for 30 years and maybe longer, which is shameful, right? Um, And, and of course there are all these reasons why, right? We, we always hear the, the a million reasons why, but, the truth is, I, I I do think that we could be doing much better um, to ensure that everyone has the opportunity to attend UT. UT is one of the, and we know this, top institutions in the nation. People come from all over to attend UT because you will indeed get a top-notch education. We have some of the best scholars working there. We have some of the best filmmakers working there. Uh, We have activist artists working there. We have people who are world renowned working on our campus. And so people want to come there to work with them. But again, there there is a a sort of limited uh, door of entry for us black and brown folks. Let's just call it what it is. Um, Now, what am I specifically doing to try to rewrite that wrong? So I am the Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in the Moody College of Communication, and the Moody College of Communication houses the radio, television, and film department in which I am a professor in. And I think one of the things that are many of the things I'll say that uh, we are doing, and one, we're trying to educate folks um, about these sort of, again, historical biases and, and present-day biases that, that people operate in and sometimes are not aware and and if they are aware, we're calling them out on it and letting them know that what they're doing is not right. Um, we are trying to create pipeline programs so we can bring more black and brown students in. We are 
um, of trying to get everyone. I know within my college specifically, um, we we had a mandate where everyone would would take a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, training, where we could talk about anti-racism, um, where we could talk about sexism and homophobia, um, and we where we could just talk about uh, sort of equity and inclusion very broadly, so that everybody sort of is sort of speaking the same language, right? You know, I don't know how successful that's been. I do think that um, we have seen some success, but look, it's the first year of me doing this. And so as we move forward, we'll see more. Um, also, you know, just, just again, having conversations like this, very open and transparent conversations and trying to just ensure that all students uh, are heard, that they feel value, that they feel like their voices um, actually matter. Um, and that professors understand that every student is not the same and that you must meet students where they are. Yes, you, you must elevate them, right? You, you must make them rise to the occasion. Uh, you must push them and challenge them, right? I'm, I'm doing all of those things in my classroom. But I also understand as someone, you know, who comes from the hood of San Antonio, I also understand that everybody is not made the same, right? Because again, back to what I said earlier, there are certain uh, circumstances and circumstances that are, are created by design to keep some people down and others up. And so, you know, making sure my faculty understand that, I think is, is key. And then, you know, look, specifically in my classroom, back to the filmmaking, I think one of the things that I always do is I make sure that every student, you know, feels that their story matters, that the narrative that they want to tell is valid, that the people that they want to put on screen, even if those individuals have never, have never been on screen before, that they deserve to be on screen, um, that there's a reason why um, those stories need to be told, and that if those stories are touching you on a very intimate level because they're, they're your story, that, that once you put them out into the world, there are going to be other people who are going to gravitate to those narratives because, again, you're telling a story that is both personal and universal. No matter how many people told you you shouldn't tell it, I am in that classroom letting you know that not only should you tell it, but in my classroom, you will tell it. Um, and I have watched students who come in unsure of themselves, afraid to speak up in class because they've, they've had other people not uh, champion them in this way. I've seen those individuals really blossom and open up and, and leave my classroom very different from the way they were when they first entered it. And so I am just in the film work, in the administrative work, and then as a professor, I am a champion of those, again, who have been marginalized. And I wanna make sure that those marginalized people find themselves in the center and have a loud voice to begin to make the change that they wanna see and that we all need to see in the world. That was gonna be my next question is, what are you excited about? And not just in your students, but the the students in Moody College, um, you know, just kind of, Texas filmmaking in general. Yeah, I'm excited that that people are 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 more more bold, right? I'm excited that that people are no longer cowering and allowing fear to paralyze them from telling the narratives that they have always wanted to tell. I'm excited that again I am seeing more um filmmakers of color get the opportunity to tell their stories um that they are being championed by systems 
that have oppressed them for so long. Um, and even if, again, don't, don't, and I need to, I have to say this, I'm not saying that these systems even necessarily want to champion them, but, but you also uh, don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And so we understand that sometimes it's that. It doesn't matter. I don't care about how I get in the door because once I get in, I'm going to blow it up and then you, I'm going to be undeniable, right? And so, and so I, I'm excited that these doors have opened and that people are able to, to make their work and just excited, um, yeah, that these, these marginalized voices are, are now having the opportunity to speak loud and to be centered and, and to, to, to bring those stories, to exhume those narratives that I feel like have been buried for so long. I'm also just excited, you know, I'm going to a personal level now. I just feel like even in my own creative career, there have just been things that have, have happened that I've been working, you know, I've been trying to work for a long time. I've been grinding, trying to get into TV. And finally, this summer, I got my first major network television directing gig, right? Um, you know, finally this summer, I'm I'm gonna direct a a, a major commercial or, or ad or you know like like these things that I've just been working for for so long are I'm seeing them come to fruition, um, and so I'm excited even about that for myself, not just because of me, but because my team, right, my my people, right. I feel like we all are gonna rise up together because we've all been working and grinding and hustling and just trying to make this thing happen together as a team, beating down this door as a collective, supporting each other, loving on each other, building each other up when things got tough and hard. And I'm seeing my folks do their thing. And it is, it is, it is beautiful. It's refreshing. Um, and I'm just excited to see what the next, you know, one or two years holds for all of us. I'm excited too. I have to admit my level of knowledge on these topics is super limited, but now my view on them has expanded so much. There is value in preserving film history and seeking out preservation of the broadest representation possible. There is value in film criticism from new and diverse voices in the space, and there is value in lifting up the next generation of filmmakers, no matter their background or circumstances. Without this discourse, we don't get a full picture of the great work coming out of this stage. So we have to keep talking and we have to keep advocating for all aspects of film and the many voices that contribute to them. We won't have a lightning round today because I'm not entirely sure what that would entail. So let's skip that part this week. We are truly going with the flow this week, y'all. <laughs> Thank you to all of our guests in the episode, Michael Thievolt, Caroline Frick, Marissa Maribal, Mirasol Enriquez, and Yaki Smith. Thanks for tuning in to episode seven of Hyper Real Film Club Presents, Texas Film in Focus. Stay tuned for the next episode where I'll talk to more people about another aspect of why Texas is such a vibrant film community that breeds great stories and highly skilled talent. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at sraylopez, that's S-R-A-E-L-O-P-E-Z, and follow Hyper Real Film Club on Instagram at Hyper Real Film Club or at the website hyperrealfilm.club. Texas Film in Focus is produced and hosted by me, Samantha Ray Lopez. Our editor slash sound designer is Laura Rivero, and our podcast admin assistant is Chloe Carcamo. Special thank you to the Hyper Real Film Club for letting me do whatever I want, and of course, the Texas Commission on the Arts.